and uh, take your Bible as we continue our study in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 25. And I encourage you to keep your Bible open. You're going to be needing it. We're going to be going to a lot of places today as we let the scriptures tell the story about the cycles of dysfunction, cycles of dysfunction. Thank you. Genesis chapter 25, we'll begin with verse, verses 19 through 28. You can follow along as I read, either through your scriptures or up on the screen. I encourage you to take notes. And uh, Brendan, if you push A, let's make it brighter up here for as well, okay? Genesis 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Pandan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And remember that verse. That's probably the key to this whole story. Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Well, we looked at the life of Abraham and Sarah and Lot last week, and now we look at Isaac. And today we'll look at Isaac and Rebekah as they have children. Isaac is now 60 years of age when Esau and Jacob, the twins, are born. We see the two predominant character flaws with Rebekah and Isaac that are passed on to Jacob and Esau, the habits of showing favoritism and deception. And our purpose in this message, and the messages all the way up through Joseph, when we get to Joseph, Joseph will have had these same character qualities passed on to him. And like a big suitcase, he's going to unpack those things and deal with them. But we're going to see these cycles of dysfunction continue on. So we need to look at our lives and say every believer should overcome the character flaws that have been modeled by those in authority over their lives. That's important. All of us, if we're honest, we've learned some negative things and positive things growing up in the families that we lived in or living in now, our teachers, our sports coaches, all kinds of uh, people that have been in our lives and they've modeled behavior, good or bad. And sometimes if we take a serious look at our lives, we can see how those things have affected us for the good or for the bad. And we're going to focus on the cycles of dysfunction that we see that goes through the DNA of this family. You know, when we <clears throat> face times in our life and we're 
it's revealed to us some character flaws, we have to deal with them. You know, it's, I've had people tell me back east that they grew up Italian and therefore that's why they're angry. Well, once you become a believer in Christ, you have to deal with the anger, not just because, <clears throat> excuse me, because you're Italian. You know, and so we got to look at our lives. And yet when we become a believer in Christ, we're called upon to change and become responsible before God for those character flaws so we can match up with the holiness of God. Too many people in our society are caught up in these cycles of dysfunction. They consider themselves victims. And <clears throat> when they come to Christ, they do they, what do they do with them? How do they deal with them? So each one of us is responsible before God to look at our lives and to break these cycles of character and personality flaws by surrendering all of them to the Spirit of God. There's no exceptions and no excuses. And how do we deal with these things in a positive way? Well, <clears throat> Hebrews, or sorry, Romans 12:2 says, by the renewing of our mind, through the reading and the meditating and the memorizing of God's word. <clears throat> reading positive things to help us escape the old mindsets and also to purposely set new habits. And you know, the gospel and grace is a messy thing and we need people to walk through the changes in our life sometimes to be accountable. And we have to share the mess that's in our lives so that someone can come and pray with us and be with us. And some of you have walked those journeys with people. Counseling, if necessary, if it comes to that, godly counsel. But sometimes it takes years to deal with these character flaws or these dysfunctions in our life. Some of the things like abuse. And I feel so sad for people who've been abused, especially as a child and have to carry that for the rest of their lives. We need to have compassion and empathy toward those people, but those people need to deal with that so they don't become abusers as well. And there are people in our society of destructive relationships and they feel they're victims of their upbringing and they feel hopeless, they feel trapped, they feel like they cannot break out of the cycle. So let us learn today by God's grace and his strength and spirit to overcome and how we can break the cycles of dysfunction for our sake, but also the family members that will come after us. So the first thing on your outline is this, the dysfunction of showing favoritism. <clears throat> the dysfunction of showing favoritism. And let's pause here for a moment and let's just pray. Let's just pray about that and pray about God revealing things in our life that we, as we go through the story, that we can work through with God. Father, we just thank you for your word, that it speaks to every issue of our lives. And Lord, this is a touchy subject as we think about dysfunction. It'll bring up difficult memories for some in this room of things that they've witnessed or been a part of in their upbringings. And Lord, our purpose is not to bring guilt. Our purpose is to bring hope and encouragement that through your word and your Holy Spirit that you can break through and break those cycles of dysfunction so that we can have victory in these areas of our life so that we can pass on and model the positive behavior of the word of God for those around us and our current family and our families to come. We just pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. We see, first of all, the dysfunction of showing favoritism. And it begins at the birth of Esau and Jacob. 
Rebecca was barren like Sarah was and like Rachel, Jacob's future wife. We see verse 21, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, similar to Abraham in Genesis 16, Isaac prayed to have children, and God answered his prayer. There was a conflict, as we read in the scripture reading, going on in the womb, and there would be uh, nations, these two boys would lead after their birth, and they would have a tension between them. Jacob would lead Israel. Jacob's name originally meant, may God protect. Later, it took on the name deceiver. And at birth, Jacob's name meant one who grabs the heel or one who trips up. And Jacob's personality was a quiet one of one who wanted to dwell among the tents to stay close to home. But Esau was opposite in personality, and he became the head of the Edomites. And, his, and the word Esau in the Hebrew, it's a wordplay. Esau, Seir, the place where Esau and the Edomites would live in the future. It's southeast of the Dead Sea. Red is related to the word Edom. Describes Esau's personality and draw to the out of doors. He was a skillful hunter and he loved game to eat just like his father Isaac. And notice Harry is related to the Hebrew word Seir. So his name described the fact he was a, a person who was going to be Harry and person who would be a father of the Edomites. The unnatural order, notice in the scripture, where the older would serve the younger. That was countercultural at that time. God had chosen the younger of the older before the twins were born as part of God's sovereign plan. In Romans chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, it says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. We see here the description of how the parents had their favorite son. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And that created the tension in the family. And then we see that the death of Isaac, this attitude of favoritism. Turn over to Genesis 27. And again, we'll let the scriptures share the story. <clears throat> Genesis 27, verse 1. Isaac's at the, near, at the end of his life. He's old. His eyes were dim so that he could not see. And he called Esau, his older brother, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I'm old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. And now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, and we'll continue to read that in just a moment, Rebekah begins the process of uh, conniving and coming up with a deceitful scheme. But we see favoritism as a sin showing partiality or prejudice towards someone based on their wealth, their education, their color of skin, their religion, and the list could go on and on, is not what God desires. Take your Bible, turn over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We're studying that in our connect group. I think, Terry, you're studying it in your connect group. James is my kind of guy. He's in your face, he's direct. And he says this in James 2, verse 1. 
My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He's impugning them for what they did and how they viewed people. And then in verse 5, James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. It's important for us to treat everyone equally, the poor, the wealthy. And when we look at scripture, what do we see over and over in the word of God? God has a special place in his heart for the downtrodden, for the brokenhearted, for the poor. And uh, so we who may have some kind of wealth or enough money to take care of ourselves, it's incumbent upon us to minister to the poor as they have needs. I think it's so important that we get that balance in our life. Actress Weiss Witherspoon, who played the role of June Carter Cash in the movie Walk the Line, described the benefit of attending church. She said this, I was raised going to church every Sunday, and I go to church most Sundays with my kids. For me, where I'm at in my career, so many people want to put you in a place that you're not real and treat you like you're not real. For me, it's a great experience of grounding going to church, and I stand next to people who have nothing and who have everything, and we all treat each other the same because we all are the same. It's just like a little weekly reminder. Another reason for us to gather together in person and worship is to worship with one another, regardless of where we are, the way society views our status, whether we are wealthy or not. We are all one in Christ as we gather together. So we need to be careful that subconsciously or consciously that we don't allow the Sin of partiality and favoritism or prejudice be named among us in any capacity. As a parent, as a teacher, as a worker in the workplace, as a sports member of a sports team or a coach, we must treat everybody on their merit and not our preferences. One of the most famous quotes that you all know from Martin Luther King Jr., he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. And that's rooted in scripture, that thought. So the application here is the showing of favoritism creates deep emotional wounds. When we do that, in the workplace it creates tension, it creates big problems in the home life, kids, grandkids, the, strong, the showing of favoritism creates deep emotional wounds. No one can quantify the damage that's done in a family when it's patently obvious that one person is treated more special than others. The years of consequences of that action are like throwing a rock into a stream or a pool and watching the ripples go out. The ripple effect of 
showing favoritism will carry on into generation after generation. But let's look at the second character flaw that became a part of the DNA of this family, the dysfunction of deception. Deception. Deception, manipulation. We see right out of the gate the selling of the birthright. The selling of the birthright. In Genesis 25, turn back there to Genesis 25. We're going to be hopping around and looking at a lot of scriptures there in Genesis 25, 26, 27. Genesis 25, verse 29. Now once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay? And that's important. He was saying, okay, I'm no longer the one that's the oldest. I'm going to give that to you. And Jacob, as we said, was a very quiet man who dwelt among the tents. The word boil or cooking meant more than it sounds like. Jacob remembered the promise that was repeated to him as a boy found in Genesis 25, 23, that his brother would serve him. The Hebrew word for cooking is zid, Z-I-D. It means to be exalted or presumptuous. Jacob had been patiently and quietly plotting and waiting for this particular situation to occur. You see, some people treat spiritual and eternal things with contempt. Others, like Jacob, regard them so highly, he resorted to ungodly means to attain what he wanted, namely using deception and manipulation. Then we see the sneaky dealings with Abimelech. The sneaky dealings with Abimelech, and we'll just highlight this, but if you want to read it, look at Genesis 26 sometime and read the entire story. But basically, there was a famine in the land. And again, like Abraham, Isaac thought, well, I'll go down to Egypt. But God said no. He went to Gerar and stopped there. And Abimelech was the leader over that particular region. And so while he was there in Gerar, um, he told everybody that his wife was really his sister. Wow, where we've heard that story before, right? with Abraham and Sarah. And so the same thing. And one day Abimelech's looking out his window and he sees um, Isaac cuddling with his wife Rebecca, not like a sister would, but like a husband and wife. And it clues him in that this is, that he's lying to him. And so he brings him in and he rebukes him for it. And in verse 11 of Genesis 26, Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death to leave them alone and have nothing to do with them. See, marriage was a vital mainstay for future generations. And if Rebecca had committed adultery as Isaac risked the possibility, it could have meant from a human perspective, we know God's sovereign, but looking at it from a human perspective, it could have meant the death of the nation of Israel. Thus, not only was God preserving future generations, but just as importantly, he was preserving the commitment of marriage because it's the foundation of what keeps society and culture together. The attack on marriage today is directly from Satan himself. 
because he knows if he can destroy God's definition of marriage or redefine it, he will deal a destructive blow to our American society or to any society. The Roman Empire fell from within because of moral decay and marriage was no longer considered something that was sacred. In 2000, at the end of his 40-year political career, Senator Patrick Moynihan said this, the biggest change that I've seen is that the family structure has come apart all over the North Atlantic world. The change has occurred in a historical instant, Moynihan said, something that was not imaginable 40 years ago. Decades of data show how American families are changing. And we're going to look at a few statistics from a study done in 2019 comparing the family to prior years. Do you realize in 1949, 78.8% of all households contained married couples? 70 years later, 48.2% of households in America have married couples. Marriage has declined across races and ethnicities, but the trend is more pronounced for some. The marriage rate has decreased 5% among white people, 8% among African American, and 9 percentage points for the Hispanic since 1990. Meanwhile, marriage rates for Asian Americans has remained around 61% since 1990. In 1990, 6.8% of men were divorced at the time of the census survey. But in 2019, that figure was 8.3%. The rate peaked for men in 2013 at 9%. The percentage of women who are divorced has grown from 9.4 to 11 from 1990 to 2019. And here's an amazing statistic that I hadn't thought about. The single-person households increased five-fold since 1960, from 7 million to 36 million. The population living with at least one other person hasn't even doubled during that period. And then one other statistic, between 2008 and 2018, the number of same-sex married couples quadrupled from 142,000 to 592,000, according to this data. And so while the American home and, and uh, marriages are shrinking and homes are getting smaller and there's more single adults living on their own, it's going to create a big difference in how the government provides services to this ever-changing demographic and the way things are going. So it's going to cause them to have to rethink how they're going to service the people in our country. In Genesis 26, if you want to take the time, you can read verses 12 through 25 on your own. But just to kind of summarize this situation, Abimelech starts messing and deceiving and manipulating Isaac in return. You see, Gerar was a place where Abraham had been. And he had dug some wells. And the Philistines were the ones living in Gerar, and they filled in these uh, wells that were Abraham's. And so whenever Isaac came to Gerar and began to dig out the wells that Abraham had, had had, the Philistines, once water was hit, the Philistines reclaimed them for themselves. They took two of the wells. Finally, Isaac goes off to himself and finds and digs a brand new well. And it's called Rehoboth, the room provided by the Lord. Well, Isaac lied about Rebekah being his wife, and the Philistines didn't live up to Abimelech's promise to stay away from Isaac. 
But Abimelech finally makes a treaty with Isaac because he recognizes that God is with Isaac just as Abimelech made a treaty with Abraham recognizing the very same thing. And then we see the stealing of the blessing by Jacob. You know these two, the birthright. And now the stealing of the blessing. The blessing is when the father at the end of life takes, in, in most situations, the oldest son in and blesses him and blesses his future family. And that was what was about to happen here. And in Genesis chapter 27, look at verse 6. Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. He said, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Now Jacob, you know, he, he had some issues. He said, first of all, my voice doesn't sound like Esau, and I'm not a hairy man like Esau is. So we got a problem, Mom. How are we going to deal with this? She said, don't you worry. You go and prepare the game. And so Rebecca goes and gets the best clothes that Esau had and, of course, had the smell of Esau because he was a man who was outdoors. When the food was prepared, Rebecca took the hides and placed it on the smooth arms of Jacob and the back of his neck so that when Isaac would touch him, he would have a sense this may be Esau. And of course, the food's prepared and Jacob goes in and he begins to talk and, and, and Isaac says, well, you have the voice of Jacob, but you're bringing me the food. And he reaches out and he touches his arms and says, okay, you have the hairy arms of Esau. And so the deception occurs and then, and then Isaac pronounces the blessing on Jacob, thinking it's Esau. Well, we know what happens as soon as Jacob leaves the scene. Esau shows up, and he prepares the food. And in verse 38 of chapter 27 in Genesis, Esau comes in to his father, Isaac, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Here's a picture of a result of parental favoritism and how it tore the family apart. Look at the prophecy in verse 39 and 40, that he will serve his brother, the younger brother. But one day he will break the tie, break the yoke upon his neck, and he will be free. And notice what Esau's reaction is. He wept bitterly first, and then he said, I'm going to take out Jacob after my father dies and there's a period of mourning. This is a picture of deception and Jacob was worried he would be cursed and not blessed. In Genesis 27, 12, perhaps my father will feel me, he said to his mom, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. 
He knew the risk, but he still followed through. And at least Jacob realized his actions could put God's promise in jeopardy. He would later learn that God's blessings are given by God and not gained by his deceit and manipulation. That's an important lesson for all of us to learn. Just as Abraham ran ahead of God's will and then Ishmael came about, so Jacob, he's learning early on here, questioning, should I run ahead of doing what God wants to do in his time and his way by doing it myself? Then we see the sending of Jacob by Rebekah. The problems continue. The dysfunction continues to roll on. In Genesis 27, look at verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft? Why should I lose both of you, she's saying, in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So Rebekah sends Jacob because she knows Esau is about to kill him at some point, not too, too in the, not too far in the distant future. She deceives her husband and uses the excuse that she doesn't want Jacob to marry a local woman, but someone of Laban's tribe. She knew by sharing this half-truth that she could get Isaac to support Jacob's leaving. And the Canaanites, they were a mixed breed of people. They were infiltrated by dozens of groups and clans in their society by treaties and by marriages. And Abraham did not want Isaac to have a Canaanite wife, and neither did Isaac want that for Jacob. So Isaac passes on the pure blessing bestowed upon him by Abraham and sends him away, Jacob, to go to Laban. Then we see, lastly under this point, the seething anger of Esau. The seething anger. Some people allow the anger to build within them. Some people wait until a point in time that they explode. We don't know exactly how Esau's personality was and how he dealt with anger, but we see the seething anger that was continuing to work in his heart. Look at Genesis 26, 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Besethmoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. He did the opposite, Esau did, of what the father told Jacob to do. And he married Hittite woman, and it was bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Padam Aram to take a wife from there. And as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman, Isaac said. And Jacob obeyed his father and mother and went to Padam Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite woman did not please Isaac, his father, what did Esau do? He goes to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahaphah, the daughter of Ishmael, and Abraham's son, and the sister of Naabathoth. He went 
and rebelled again and married people within the tribe of Ishmael. Esau rebelled by marrying Hittite women and it was not what Isaac and Rebekah wanted. Later he marries into the family of Ishmael. It's ironic that the unchosen son of Isaac, Esau, marries into the unchosen lineage of Ishmael. Think about that, the irony of that. And so the application is this, the seemliness of deception becomes a way of life. We see over and over and over the cycle of this function that happened from the beginning of the birth when they chose which one, Isaac or Rebekah, who they were going to favor more, and it led to, even after their death, the manipulation and deception that continued on. Satan is the father of lies, according to Jesus, and when we lie, we are just like Satan. So here's our key thought. The children learn by what is seen more than what is taught. We all know that. But we need to be reminded of that. Children learn more by what is seen than what is taught. Favoritism and deception that Isaac learned from his father have now passed down through him into his son Jacob. And the question is, how can we avoid the cycles of dysfunction continuing on in our generations, in our family, in our kids and our grandkids? We don't want to be like Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. What can we do to break the cycle of dysfunction? And each one of us has to fill in the blank of what those character flaws may be. Be reminded of two things as we look through these remaining character studies in Genesis. First of all, the sins of the father are passed down to future generations. Be reminded of that. In 1 Kings 15.3, and he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. David's sons, even though David was a man after God's own heart, he had a lot of flaws, and it got passed down to his sons and the generations after. The sins of the father are passed down to future generations. And second of all, the children learn by what is modeled more than what is taught, as we already said, to reiterate that key thought. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus, through the gospel, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Paul wasn't saying just imitate me, but imitate me as I imitate Christ. What you see of Christ in me, try to instill into your life as well. He wasn't saying he was perfect, but he was pointing to what God had done in his life to help him break the cycles of dysfunction that he faced. Well, there was a Rockwellian moment. <clears throat> there was a grandmother who had her seven-year-old granddaughter from far away, several time zones away, and she came for a special visit. And they were in the kitchen, and they were making snickerdoodles, and the grandmother was taking it all in as she watched, and she thought about how this would be a perfect memory. It'll be like a shawl I can put on in the months of head, and think about when all the smell of the snickerdoodles are gone, and my granddaughter's back in another time zone, I can hold on to this memory. And she watched intently as her granddaughter took a knife and was putting the flour in perfect lines. And she was very intent with it. Her tongue was wagging and doing all that. And the little girl looked up as the grandmother was watching her intently being, 
building, making ready to make these cookies. And she said, Mom, look, this is how, or Grandma, look, this is how Mom and Gary prepare to cut cocaine. You see this, Grandma? This is how Mom and Gary prepare to cut cocaine. Again, what we model and what kids see is more powerful than what is taught. Here's questions to ponder this week. How has your experience of people showing favoritism affected your life? We all have some stories about that, whether it's in the workplace or family or grandparents, aunts and uncles. Second of all, how have you felt when you found out you were deceived? Have you ever been in those situations where all of a sudden it comes to the end of the situation and you realize you've been manipulated, you've been taken advantage of, you've been deceived? And lastly, how do you live knowing that impressionable people are watching your life? Makes me think about what are the character flaws and what am I doing in my life to make sure I don't pass them on to my kids, my grandkids, to those around me. Let's bow our heads and our hearts for prayer. Father, we've looked at uh, a deep story today about a family that's going through all kinds of dysfunction and problems. Lord, I pray that you help us to examine our hearts and our lives. We thank you for spouses that can point out blind spots in our lives. We thank you for the word of God and the Holy Spirit that can help us to see things in our lives that we need to remove that we can't see for ourselves. Lord, help us to be honest when we're confronted with some of our flaws in our character. Help us to own them and to be responsible. Help us to want to do something about it, to surrender them over to you, to allow your word to take root in our lives, to remove these habits and build new good habits in our lives. And in the quietness of this moment, just before we close in prayer, just ask God to show you some areas of dysfunction that you've rationalized or justified or, well, that's just how I was raised. But if God's prompting you in his spirit, just confess it to him and make this a priority to work on in your life this week. Fathers, we close today. It's so easy for us to go about our daily business and not stop at times to reflect and think how we're being perceived, what we're doing, how we're coming across with people, and Lord, not dealing with the issues in our life. And they get repeated over and over and over again. Lord, help us dig deep in our soul and to pull out the roots, not just the weeds, but the roots of these dysfunctions in our lives so that we can pass on and be like Paul to be imitators of Christ so that those around us will see the blessings and the righteousness of God 
that they can experience in their lives as well. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.